Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, a roundup of major state news stories, beginning with redistricting. California's Independent Redistricting Commission is expected to release draft maps of voting districts today that will shape who gets elected and whose issues are reflected on the ballot in the next decade. We'll also look at what California stands to get from the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill that Congress passed late last week. And Governor Gavin Newsom responded last night to the Where's Gavin headlines. We'll dig into all that and your questions right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This hour, the latest draft maps for California's voting districts, also what President Biden's infrastructure bill offers California, and the prospects for passing the rest of his economic agenda. Here's Speaker Nancy Pelosi from the U.N. Climate Conference in Glasgow. Yes, we intend, uh, that is our plan, to pass the bill the week of November 15th, as is indicated in our uh, statements that were made at at the time of passing the uh, infrastructure bill, and we're very proud of that. As always, you can weigh in on any of the topics we cover this hour by calling 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can email us, forum at kqed.org, or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. First, to redistricting. And for that, we're joined by KQED's Guy Marzarotti, reporter and producer with KQED's California Politics and Government Desk. Hi, Guy. Good morning, Mina. So tell us what we're expecting today from California's Independent Redistricting Commission. Well, the commission is wrapping up work this week on their draft map. So these are basically the political district lines that California will have for the next 10 years. Uh, And to quote Yogi Berra, it's getting late early for the commission. (laughs) They really have tight deadlines to put these maps in place. They draw these draft maps um, and are hoping to complete that by the end of the day today. Um, and then spend some few weeks taking public comment on those. Eventually, 
basically by the end of December, they need to have these final maps in place for the election starting in June. And as you alluded to, these maps are a really big deal. Voting districts shape basically how democracy functions in California. Just remind us the importance of what this commission is doing. Right. So this is, you know, a change from how California used to do this process and how many states, most states in the, in the U.S. still do, which is in many places, state legislatures draw district lines in order to protect incumbents, right? They draw the lines to make sure they can win their next election. In California, we have a independent commission comprised of folks who volunteered uh, to help with this process, uh, draw the lines for Congress, for state assembly, for state Senate. Um, And so it definitely adds a different flavor to the process when you have folks who are not politicians or involved in state government drawing this, uh, drawing these maps. But, you know, they're incredibly important where maps end up being drawn, where lines end up really determine the voice that communities and that can mean a city, a county, a religious group, you know, a neighborhood, an ethnic group within a neighborhood, how strong any of those voices are is largely determined by where they sit in a political district. And uh, even though this is an independent commission and that's what voters voted in in 2008, as you say, there will still be a lot of eyes on whether or not there is any gerrymandering, for example, whether whether voters are concentrated in in as few districts as possible, voters that share the same views or whether or not they're basically spread out to dilute their power guy. Right. And I mean, when we talk about the gerrymandering or that that could occur as as the result of this process, it's not the you know political gerrymandering that we're probably most familiar with talking about on a national stage, which is a p- specific party drawing lines to protect their power. Uh, in this case, you know, they're in any line drawing, there are going to be communities that are upset by the process. This commission has a few kind of criteria that they take in place when they're drawing the lines. The first of which is to make sure that districts are of equal size. The second is to make sure that they're not violating the Voting Rights Act, making sure that minority communities can still elect a representative of their choice. After that, it's really about taking in community input. And again, that can be from various types of communities. And not every community can get the result is is going to get the result they want in this process. In some cases, that could lead to communities being split up or having less of a, a say in a certain district than they otherwise might prefer. We're talking with Guy Marzarati about the latest headlines on California, and redistricting is certainly one of them. As we watch for these draft maps to come out. There are also some interesting differences uh, this year from 10 years ago. I mean, namely, Guy, that we're going to lose it. We've lost a congressional seat. Right, right. That's the biggest, I think, political thing to watch here is is the, is California's loss of a congressional seat, right? This entire redistricting process is based on the U.S. Census. So the U.S. Census gives us a snapshot of who is living where. And based on that, the political lines are redrawn to reflect uh, those changes. And California will lose a congressional seat, as you say, because of the results of the census. Um, And the lines are going to determine where that loss will be felt. It's most likely going to be in Southern California, in the LA area. Uh, And of course, there will be political repercussions because of that. There is no 
residency requirement for Congress. So your Congress member is not required by law to live in the district. So there is some flexibility that incumbents have to run in different districts or, you know, move around. Um, But there still will be a loss of a seat and that kind of ripples up through the state. And you could end up with scenarios where incumbents are, you know, find themselves in a in a district that shares territory with another incumbent. Um, and that all will have to be sorted out in a pretty short timeline, right? Because all of these folks are going to be back on the ballot in June of 2022. And today's maps are not the first maps that they've released, this commission. They, they put out... Round, earlier rounds of what they called visualizations. Can you talk a little bit about what you saw there uh, that drew some strong reactions and, and what they could say about what we will see in terms of the maps they put out today? Right. So, you know, there are critiques of the maps up and down the state, but it's, but the process that you're discussing is kind of interesting in itself, right? That this uh, process starts with a lot of hearing from community input. That's largely what took place over the summer is asking for uh, what, you know, they call communities of interest to dial in, to call the commission, to send in kind of their feedback of, hey, we are this specific group. We want to be represented in one seat. Through that, the commission looks at these visualizations, these different kind of ideas. But now it's really getting down to the point where they need to draw a specific line, right? They've spent months looking at these different ideas for districts. Now it's kind of time to to wrap up this process. And it's difficult. You know, they're dealing with uh, communities in a massive state. And I think it's been a struggle for the commission to really hone in their focus and get this done. I mean, last night, there was discussion about the community Vallejo and how to represent Vallejo in an assembly district, whether to link it with some other historically black communities like Richmond, or whether to keep it with the rest of the cities in Solano County. And just the discussion over that, trying to, to draw the lines and make the population uh, even out, took you know more than an hour. At the end, the commissioner said, "You know what? This just—we're not getting. This is going nowhere. Let's scrap every change that we've made and kind of go back, go back to zero. So, and and that's kind of repeated itself up and down the state as we're really getting to crunch time here. Yeah, I remember seeing a story earlier this month about about Davis being linked to the state of Jefferson essentially as a congressional seat as well and that drawing some reaction too. Right. And th- there's going to be these kind of uncomfortable pairings uh, that you're going to see. A, a one that was really contentious early on was the commission thought about joining perhaps uh, eastern parts of Contra Costa County with the Central Valley, right? Communities like Tracy, which have growing connections to the Bay Area. The more and more residents are leaving the Bay Area because of the cost of living, going to places like Tracy. Lots of people commute every day through the Altamont Pass from the Central Valley to jobs in the Bay Area. There's, you know, plans to, you know, connect these communities more in the future with rail like Valley Link. But this is, you know, still historically have been two different communities. And there was a lot of pushback, especially in the Tri-Valley, you know, Dublin, Pleasanton, Livermore, uh, that they wanted their own representative in their region in, in Contra Costa and Alameda counties. They didn't want to be linked to the Central Valley. And then there was a political ripple effect from that too, right? Tracy is currently probably the most liberal part of a Central Valley district held by Josh Harder. It's a swing district. It will be hotly contested in 2022. If you take a liberal city like Tracy and put it with the Bay Area, well, 
then that makes it harder for Democrats to win in an area like the Central Valley. So all of these moves kind of have ripple effects up and down the state. And while the uh, commission does not take into account political balance of power, that's not something that they're supposed to be thinking about. It's definitely the input and definitely on the minds of political watchers in California. Yes. And as you touched on earlier, the uh, situation in L.A. with the loss of the congressional seat will be very interesting to watch. So even as after these maps come out, and even though they have been drafted with a lot of public input, there will be an opportunity to weigh in on these new draft maps. Can you talk about how people can weigh in and just generally how people can participate in the redistricting process? Right. So the commission is you know, still holding meetings and will do so even after these draft maps are done. Um, you can get a whole schedule of their meetings at wedrawthelinesca.org. And the meetings contain opportunities for public comment for folks to call in and kind of describe their communities and how they think their communities should be better represented uh, in the districts. The, the difficulty is oftentimes input from communities kind of conflicts with each other and, and even kind of pushing towards the same aims can sometimes result in conflict. I'll give you an example of this is what we're seeing in San Francisco, where there was a lot of uh, early groundwork, groundwork done by uh, AAPI community groups like the Asian uh, Law Caucus trying to get input on where Asian communities are in San Francisco. Even though they're incredibly diverse Asian communities, they found in you know these workshops that they held that there were a lot of commonalities between places like you know Chinese-American communities on the west side of the city, Filipino communities in Daly City, Chinese uh, neighborhoods in Visitation Valley in the Bayview. And they felt, let's kind of represent all these communities in one district. That will give them a really strong voice. The consequence, and the, and the commission has adopted that idea, the consequence is the rest of San Francisco is put in another district that is very white. And it really, critics have said it dilutes the ability for two Asian American representatives to represent the city in the state assembly as currently, as is currently the case. Um, and so these are just kind of the kind of things that the commission has to weigh. Both sides are aiming to increase Asian representation, but the way that the lines are drawn can have varying effects on that. Hmm. Redistricting, that's what we're talking about with Guy Marzarati right now. After the break, we'll be talking infrastructure. And as we discuss these different stories throughout the hour, we invite you to weigh in with your thoughts or questions about any of them. 866-733-6786, the number 866-733-6786. Post on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email us, forum at kqed.org. Stay with us. I'm Nina Kim. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the latest headlines impacting California with Guy Marzarati, reporter and producer with KQED's California Politics and Government Desk. And joining us is Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent for KQED and co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown Show. Hi, Marisa. Morning, Mina. And let me also let listeners Call in as well at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqed.org. Post thoughts on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. And uh, I want to take this call quickly from Stephanie in Oakland on redistricting. Hi, Stephanie. Go right ahead. Hi. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, so my, name, my name is uh, Stephanie Good. I am one of 15 uh, independent community members on the Oakland uh, Independent Redistricting Commission. We are the inaugural commission for redistricting. Uh, the Oaklanders voted in 2014 to create uh, this independent commission. We are uh, also in the midst of, of redistricting, redrawing our city council and school board district lines. Uh, we have a public meeting tonight, um, and we are holding workshops and meetings until... Um, mid-December, we have to have a new map produced by December 31st. So I, I'm, I'm really appreciative of your program, and I'm appreciative of, um, of the discussion that went really uh, sort of into the weeds about redistricting, really, really informative. And so I wanted to uh, bring attention uh, uh, for your audience that Oakland is also going through the process. It's also a very public process. We also take community of interest testimony, and our next meeting is this evening at 5 o'clock via Zoom. Well, Stephanie, thanks for letting us know. And Guy, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about these local efforts and how they inform state efforts. Right. So I've really been focused on the the state redistricting. But as Stephanie mentioned, this is also going on in cities and communities in all across California on the local level. Not every city or county has opted to have a redistricting commission, but many have, and they're kind of modeling what the state is doing as far as taking uh, testimony from communities. San Jose is going through a similar process right now. And one thing that a commonality across these commissions is they've really been working on a tight timeline because of the delay in a lot of the census data that came across. So that was something that really pushed back the work of a lot of these commissions, or at least probably made it more stressful for them. (laughs) Well, uh, Marisa Lagos, I want to turn attention now to infrastructure. And of course, at the end of last week, we had the passage of the $1.2 trillion infrastructure package that is now awaiting President Biden's signature. Uh, And uh, talk a little bit about the process of getting to that? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, it's been long. um, And, you know, we still do have this outstanding budget bill that is really sort of sums up Biden's larger economic and social agenda. Um, but this bill, you know, this this infrastructure bill is a big deal. And I think it's sometimes kind of gotten hidden behind that bigger political debate over kind of progressive versus moderate causes. Um, you know, here in California, we can expect to see uh, the most money out of any state, about $45 billion. Um, this is going to go to everything from the literally thousands of bridges over 1,400 and tens of thousands of uh, 14 
thousand, fifteen thousand miles of highway that are in poor condition. Um, but it does a bunch of other stuff too, Mina. I mean, we're talking about a hundred million dollars for broadband access, um, billions to help improve access to clean drinking water. Uh, it's kind of incredible that in twenty twenty one in California some 1 million Californians do not have access to clean and safe drinking water at their homes. Um, and there is a climate change element to this, not as far as the president had wanted, but there are millions of dollars to really help, um, I think, sort of prepare for wildfires and things like cyber attacks. Um, we're talking about not just, you know, clearing brush and a lot of the kind of preventative stuff, but investing in new technologies so blazes can be spotted faster, things like that. Um, and so, yeah, it's been a long road to here, but they got a bipartisan bill passed, um, although not bipartisan in California, none of the 10 Republicans here voted for it. Con con congressional Republicans. Well, I want to bring Michael Hiltzik into the conversation, business columnist for the Las Los Angeles Times. Hi, Michael. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, glad to have you on. And I wanted to bring you in because your column about the infrastructure bill, I was struck by it because you really saw it as much more than what we traditionally think of infrastructure as. Can you talk about what struck you about the infrastructure bill? Sure. Well, our traditional concept of infrastructure is strictly physical. We're talking about roads, bridges, airports, uh, things, ports, things like that. Uh, I think what this bill does is it continues what's been sort of a trend over the last decade or so, which is to broaden the definition of infrastructure to be, first of all, to encompass new technologies such as broadband, but also new conceptions uh, that, that place social reforms uh, into the category of infrastructure. And I think that's long overdue and it's, it's wholly proper. I mean, we're talking about uh, changes uh, in, in the economy that, that really represent investments for the future. And that's what infrastructure always has been. So talk about what some of the human infrastructure spending and investments are in this bill. Sure. Well, there's a lot in this bill that addresses uh, the environment and global warming. Uh, there's uh, There are elements in this bill that address labor rights uh, as uh, as we reported, uh, the bill gives the, the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB, authority for the very first time to levy monetary penalties on businesses that are found to have engaged in unfair labor practices. And that's generally interfering with collective bargaining and, and organizing for unions. Before this, the NLRB could only order businesses to stop doing it and get cease and desist orders. Now they can impose penalties of up to $50,000 per violation of the law and $100,000 on repeat violators. So uh, th that's something that I think is going to make businesses that are inclined to interfere with union organizing think twice about doing so. There's also uh, a billion dollars in this measure to upgrade antitrust enforcement by the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission this is an area of the law that really has gotten short shrift over the last 10, maybe 20 years, but really needs to be upgraded. And this has a lot of influence on, on consumer welfare. If, if we put limits on, 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 on uh, corporate combinations, that's going to result in lower prices and more choice for consumers. Uh, there's also a lot of, uh, of healthcare provisions uh, in this bill. There's the cap of out-of-pocket costs for insulin at $35 per month. 
There's uh, uh, money for training professionals in palliative and hospice care. Hmm. There's money to modernize state and local public health agencies, which we, we now know is very much in need, thanks to uh, uh, what we've seen in the pandemic. Well, Hussam writes, does the infrastructure bill support green infrastructure related to electric cars? If so, in what form? Rebates or something else? Michael Hultzik? Sure. Uh, sure, there's money uh, There's money for EVs. There's money to build out a network of electric vehicle uh, chargers. And this is, of course, really critical for the expansion of EVs in this country and in this state. Uh, you know, it's a chicken and egg problem to... Uh, uh, do businesses build chargers for EVs before they actually have a critical mass of electric vehicle uh, uh, ownership, or do they wait for that to happen? Um, I think Governor Newsom's initiative of, of essentially banning the sales of new gas-guzzling cars starting in 2013 is designed in part to inspire businesses to start building out that charging infrastructure. And the money that, that's going to be provided through this bill to do that is really going to help. Now, Michael, you were pretty impressed that the Democratic Party, that Joe Biden was able to get this infrastructure bill passed uh, some 10 months into his term. Talk about how you think this will go in terms of general reaction from the public. Well, this has been this has been a problem, I think, for Democrats going back, uh, you know, quite a while, certainly the last 10 years or longer, which is that they're they're pretty good at developing policies and programs that help the rank and file that help ordinary Americans. And they are really incompetent about making sure that the public knows what's at stake when they go to the polls and decide whether to give Democrats a further chance or to turn the economy back over to Republicans. So this is something that I think is, is really now job one for the Democrats. They have to, it, it, it's all about the term messaging. They have to get their messaging skills back up to snuff. Uh, there hasn't been a really good messenger in the Democratic Party, I think since Franklin Roosevelt and that of course is, you know, we're talking about the 30s and 1940s. But FDR never let the sun set without him making sure that the public knew what was at stake in keeping him in office and keeping Democrats in office. The, the, the Democratic Party has lost that. And now there's the challenge. They need to define the infrastructure bill. They can't leave that to the Republicans the way they left the Affordable Care Act for the Republicans to define. They, they, they really have a... a uh, a hard task ahead of them, and they need to be up to it. We're talking with Michael Hiltzik, business columnist for the Los Angeles Times. Also with us is Guy Marzarati, reporter and producer with KQED's California Politics and Government Desk, and Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent for KQED and co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown Show. We're taking your questions about the infrastructure bill and what it means for California, your questions about redistricting and how that process is shaping up. And uh, you can join us at 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqed.com. Org, post comments on Twitter at KQED Forum. Let me go to Brandon in Foster City. Hi, Brandon. Hi, you guys. Uh, thank you so much for taking my call. Um, my prior comment really was on districting. I, I do have a comment relevant to this topic. But real quick on districting, I've always wondered, why don't they just use county lines that are just permanently set and not let them move? 
and not have all this rigmarole. I've never understood that. There's got to be a reason. Um, my other question would be on the infrastructure. I really think the Democrats should, uh, you know, really consider hiring um, like almost it's sad, but that you need a PR to almost like you need PR to the government had to advertise that oatmeal is healthy and uh, eating vegetables like a, a back in school day rock. You know, you see advertisements for teaching kids that vegetables are healthy and good. And I mean, I don't know. We're almost at the point where people have to be taught that like uh, health care and, you know, a lot of the things that Democrats are fighting for are actually good for these people. But um, anyway, I'll take my comment off the air. Uh, but, yeah, I really know about the district redistricting. I've always been amazed, like, why are one side able to re- redraw the uh, lines of the borders of the game every 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 other down never understood that thank you uh sure brandon thank you guy you want to take on brandon's question about why we don't follow county lines sure i mean it, it makes sense brandon what you're saying right if you have a county supervisor that has let's say an issue with state or federal government some funding that they want or a bill that they want introduced it would make sense to have them turn to one assemblyman or one state senator or one congresswoman to get the job done There's a couple issues with it. Number one is population, right? The first task that the commission has when they're drawing lines is to make sure that each district has an equal population. Since counties have varying populations, it's not always uh, able to draw them specifically to a a congressional or Senate or assembly district. Another uh, reason this doesn't happen is a lot of communities don't see themselves as being contained within county lines. So I'll give you an example of that. There's a large Asian, South Asian community in the South Bay, stretching from Sunnyvale in Santa Clara County to Fremont, which is in Alameda County. And members of that community have dialed into the commission and asked to be kept in one congressional district where they currently are, represented by Ro Khanna. When this district was created 10 years ago, I think it was the first uh, majority Asian district in the continental U.S. And this community feels like they're not specific to Santa Clara County or Alameda County, and that the best way to represent their interests is really to be in a congressional district that cuts across those county lines. Well, uh, Marisa, to the second part of what Brandon mentioned, which is that uh, he felt Democrats need a PR firm, kind of echoing what Michael Hiltzik was saying in terms of Democrats' struggles to get their messages out. They certainly need all the help they can get for this next round of conversations around Biden's, the rest of Biden's economic package, which arguably will be an even tougher fight than infrastructure. Can you talk a little bit about what is coming up for Democrats and what they are hoping to achieve in terms of the second part of Biden's economic ambitions? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know, Mina, right? Because the details have changed so much um, and it's still a little tricky to sort of understand what the bigger demands of some of the more moderate senators like uh, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who's really, you know, pulled down the price tag of this ambitious agenda. But we do know that, you know, here in California, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who represents San Francisco, has been pushing very hard um, to include things like more childcare and universal preschool, uh, things like that in the bill. Um, There's still a push to include negotiations on prescription drug prices for the government so that, you know, the cost of Drugs could potentially come down for really everybody if if that kind of big change was made. Um, And then, you know, this is trillions of dollars of investments um, in everything from childcare to got basically climate everything change, yeah. climate change a job training i mean um and so you know i do think that the, the hope would be by democrats that they're going to get this done by the end of the year um 22 is a midterm election year and 
you know, to Michael's point, they not only need to pass this stuff and sell it sort of from a PR perspective, but actually get the money out there. Um, I do think that, you know, some of that is expanding on issues and policies that were included in some of those earlier stimulus bills like that child tax care credit. I mean, that's real money arriving in folks' bank accounts every month. And so, um, if they can get that done, when you add that all up with the, the infrastructure bill and the stimulus packages from earlier this year, I mean, we're talking about beyond New Deal era spending. Um, but I, the political climate is so different right now. Um, and you really have such thin margins, really in both houses, but the Senate's been the major holdup um, that I think this is going to be, you know, if, if they can get it through, this will be a crowning achievement for both the president and Speaker Pelosi. And Mina, if I could just jump in, in on this too, I think a lot of this is about program design, right? You don't need a salesperson for the Hoover Dam or for the highway system, right? A lot of it is about can Democrats create programs that sell themselves to voters and are self-evident in their impact. And it's something the party has really struggled with going back to the Obama stimulus. I mean, how many people, you know, champion Tesla and the, the marvel at what they've created in the last decade, most with no idea of the connection it had to the Recovery Act's loan guarantee program and all the money that it got from the stimulus program to prop it up. I think a lot of this is making sure and designing programs that are intentionally sell themselves, right? And not just fixes to, to highways and bridges that honestly, your average voter is not going to be able to pick out a measurable impact from how this changes their life. You're making me also yeah, think yeah, of so, the uh, affordable uh, care. Yeah, Michael Hiltzik. I'd like to augment what Guy just said. Uh, It's true, roads, bridges, uh, airports, uh, hard construction, Hoover Dam, which is uh, something that I wrote a book about. Uh, These are all very visible. Uh, You know, when Hoover Dam was being built, it was a tourist attraction. The the construction site was a tourist attraction. And Franklin Roosevelt, who didn't start that project, made sure that he got credit for it by, uh, by presiding over the dedication in 1935. Programs, uh, you know, child care programs, um, free uh, uh, pre-K education, all these things, uh, they don't lend themselves to sort of spectacular visuals. So yes, so it is, it can be a harder uh, call to make sure that the public understands them. But I think, uh, uh, as you said, getting money into people's pockets is going to help. And I think we have to, understand that there's always going to be a lag between uh, what's being done and what's being achieved and a public perception of what's being achieved. So that really tells you that, uh, that, that, that all this stuff really has to happen in the short term quickly so that it percolates through to public consciousness by the time people are voting in November uh, 2022. I know that uh, Senator Schumer was saying that he'd like to get this uh, reconciliation bill, the, the second part of Biden's economic agenda, through by Thanksgiving. So uh, we'll have more with Michael Hiltzik, Marisa Lagos, and Guy Marzorati after the break as we talk about the latest California news headlines and the stories impacting the state. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the latest news headlines and a few different state news stories this hour, and we invite you to weigh in with your thoughts on any of them. We've been talking about the infrastructure bill and its impact on California. We've been talking about redistricting and the process and where things stand right now as we await new draft maps. And we're talking about the next steps for Biden's economic agenda that are broadly popular in California, but Democrats have struggled to try to gain enough momentum to really push some holdout members of Congress and senators in terms of offering their full-throated support for them. And we're talking with Marisa Lagos of KQED's Politics and Government Desk, also co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown Show, a correspondent for us at KQED. Also Guy Marzarati of KQED's California Politics and Government Desk. Michael Hiltzik is with us, a business column for the Los Angeles Times. And of course, you, our listeners, 866-733-6786 is the number, 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqed.org, or post comments on Twitter or Facebook. Marisa Lagos, really quick, one of the things we didn't touch on yet with this next fight is that it is a... It is going to go through the reconciliation process. And if you could just explain quickly the risks involved in trying to pass this using the reconciliation process. Right. So this means that everything in the bill, first of all, has to be deemed related to the budget, um, which is why some of the immigration uh, policies that were in there have been stripped out. Um, And it means that Democrats can pass it with a bare majority, which they have in, you know, the Senate of 50 senators plus the vice president. But it all in in that prevents Republicans from filibustering it, but that means they have to keep all fifty senators on board. And of course, we've seen all year this sort of back and forth between Mansion um, and Senator Cinema of Arizona and the White House over the price tag and sort of the details in there. I mean, I think you also have some progressives in the House that are getting increasingly nervous. We saw a small block of them vote against the infrastructure bill because they wanted that to be a, a kind of dual vote with both bills at once. Um, but I think, you know, beyond the sort of numbers that we've been rehashing all year, that 50, the mansion cinema question, it, it is a matter of timing. I mean, the, the closer we get to 22, the sort of less likely it is that this type of vote happens, I think. And so there's a lot of urgency uh, to get this done. And of course, it's part of the bigger budget process. So, you know, we've got to fund the government. There's always about 16 balls in the air we're talking about here <laughs> at once. Um, but this is definitely, you know, this is, I think, sort of, the the bill for Biden. I, I mean, there are other issues he's going to continue working on, of course, and this is only a year, not even a year into this, right? But um, it, it, or two years into this, but this is definitely a huge priority for the president. And the very next thing we'll see is action in the House next week. I mean, at least uh, Speaker Pelosi is confident that there will right. be. Yeah, there, let's go to Phil in Burlingame. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was comment? just going to say, yeah, I mean, they're they're looking to get a vote next week. So we'll see. Phil in Burlingame, you wanted to comment on this, I think. Phil, go ahead. 
Yeah, I, you know, I have a question on the filibuster. So, you know, it, it, the filibuster for the minority party is great, you know, to prevent a bill from moving to passage. But it just seems completely out of spec to use the filibuster to uh, prevent a bill from being debated on the Senate floor, which is what's currently happening now. I, I don't really understand it. How is that possible? The filibuster should only be to prevent a final vote on the bill, not to allow a bill to advance to the floor for debate. Uh, Marisa. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of Democrats would agree with that. Um, You know, these are really arcane parliamentary rules. And I think it's important to remember that they're rules, not laws, right? I mean, these are things that, that the House and Senate, I mean, in this case, the Senate, have the ability to change. Um, you know, we did see it's it stripped from the considerations of judicial appointments under Republicans, for example. And, and I think there's a lot of folks hoping um, that even if it's not ended under this Congress, that you would see changes. So, you know, even the president, who's been very, um, I think, to some people, perplex- perplexingly you know, defensive of the filibuster and the types of rules uh, that he's talking about um, say, well, maybe we should change things. And so that maybe that could be that type of change so that it's to stop a final vote. Or it could mean that you actually have to filibuster. I mean, originally that meant you stood up and kept talking, right, (laughs) until um, you couldn't anymore. And so uh, we'll see. But it it, it does seem like if if it doesn't happen um, with this bill or some of the voting rights bills, under this Senate that it changes probably won't happen. I mean, it doesn't seem likely. Well, Jeff has a question on the infrastructure bill. Jeff writes, doesn't the infrastructure bill sell? Doesn't the infrastructure bill sell and in some cases give much of infrastructure to private businesses who will be free to raise use rates that workers will have to pay? So ultimately, this will not benefit most of us. Your reaction to Jeff Michael Hiltzik? Well, it's certainly true that uh, that the government, when it builds, uh, basically turns over the task of construction to private enterprise. Um, I'm not sure that there's much in this bill in terms of programs that gives uh, private enterprise much of a, uh, the ability to charge higher prices. I mean, if you're building a, a, a government highway or a public highway, it's rare that you're allowed to charge tolls and certainly rarer that you're allowed to charge tolls tolls and put them in your own pocket as a, as a private enterprise. So I think for the most part, these are public programs. Uh, the, the government pays private construction firms to do the, uh, to do the building work, uh, that sort of thing. But, um, and sometimes the government pays private enterprise to actually handle the administrative work. And we've certainly seen problems in that vein. But, uh, but on the whole, this is uh, federal money it's going out, uh, it's going to basically be used to, uh, to help the public to represent an investment in the future, and that's what's important. We're talking with Michael Hiltzik, business columnist for the Los Angeles Times, Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent for KQED, Guy Marzarati, producer and reporter for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk. A couple thoughts on redistricting that we're getting. Chris writes, it's ridiculous that we don't have a proportional representation system like many European countries. No district lines to draw. Members of a minority scattered across a country or state can unite as a voting bloc. And Beth asks, will redistricting change anything like affordable housing and homelessness? And will it allow for a more balanced Democrat-Republican representative state rather than geared to creating even more Democrat areas? 
Guy, your reaction to what Beth is saying here? Probably not. I don't think this, that whatever maps that the commission comes up with for Congress are going to really dramatically affect our delegation to the House of Representatives. There could be cha- small changes that affect specific races. I think a lot of people have their eyes on swing districts that have you know, been close in the past uh, and will be close in 2022. An example of that is in uh, L.A. area. Mike Garcia is a Republican who won uh, last year, won election. His district currently is slated to lose uh, Simi Valley. He basically represents areas north of L.A., uh, Antelope Valley, Santa Clarita, His district would lose Simi Valley, which is the most conservative part of his district. That would potentially make it harder for him uh, to win re-election. But right, these are kind of changes around the margins to specific districts. We're not talking about any changes that would affect the kind of Democratic dominance of our House delegation. Well, Democrats, what, they have an average more than 20 percent advantage in voter registration in congressional districts across California? Right. So uh, you're right. It's reflective. I mean, the uh, the advantage that Democrats have in the House delegation is, you know, it, it makes sense given the overall registration advantage that exists in the state. Right. And it's important to note, you know, this Marisa. is the second time we've had an independent commission drawing these lines. I mean, the system in place in California is the one that a lot of nonpartisan good government folks would like to see, you know, copied to some extent throughout the country. Um, but yeah, the numbers are just on the Democrat side here. Well, Ryan writes in regards to Brandon from Foster City's comment about advertising the bill. There was an interesting Harper's article about this with respect to the Obama recovery efforts way back in 2011. So, yes, hopefully by now, Democrats have figured out that this is important. I'm not holding my breath, though. Really quick, Michael, since you did bring this up, are you seeing any signs that Democrats will do a better job of, quote, advertising their successes if they're broadly popular? Uh, I think I've seen signs that Democrats are more aware of the need to uh, to get their uh, their act in order. Uh, and if they weren't, then I think the results of the election just uh, a week or two ago brought that home to them, that that was, in fact, I mean, you could argue that the loss in Virginia was due in part to the failure of messaging. Uh, uh, it, it had a lot to do with basically the individual candidates, certainly. But uh, I I think the results of the election really brought home the fact that there's a lot at stake here. And the Democratic Party has to make sure that its voters, and more than just its voters, are aware of what the alternative really would be. And that would be, I think, stagnation in terms of the reforms that, that it's clear most of the public actually favors. Well, I want to turn to one last uh, state news story that was popping up, not just uh, in terms of reports, news reports, but also on social media and this question about Governor Gavin Newsom's absence. And Maurice, I want to turn to you on that. Uh, Newsom was at an economic summit last night where he he gave an explanation uh, for why he had essentially not gone to Glasgow for the climate summit um, and why he hadn't really made any public appearances for about 10 days or so. Let's hear it. 
And while we're trying <laughs> to, to get that <laughs> clip, <laughs> I can say, uh, yeah, why don't you remind us what he said and we'll see if we can get it. Uh, I mean, parent guilt, his kids, he says, quote, staged an intervention and said, Dad, we cannot believe you're going to be flying across the world on Halloween. We want you here. Um, and he said he woke up the next morning with a knot in his stomach and decided the right thing to do was to stay home. Um, he put out some pictures on Halloween of the whole family dressed up as pirates. Uh-huh. Um <laughs> And we have that clip, actually. Let me play it so you don't have to keep doing that. I've been on this damn treadmill. We've gone from crisis to crisis and from wildfires and extremes, from droughts and social justice and unrest. Obviously, with COVID, had this recall you may have read about. Uh, and, and, And right after that recall, we just jumped right back into it. We had all those bills, that three weeks of intensity around bill signing. And, and, uh, and I signed up to, to go to Europe. And uh, I was ready to go, and I had that, that dinner. A lot of you know this dinner with the family. And, and, and the kids, literally, they kind of had an intervention. They said they couldn't believe that I was going to miss Halloween. And we got a five-year-old, the oldest is 12, or four young kids, and, and I'm defending myself. You know, I got to go, honey, this and that. And my wife was going to go as well. And, you know, mom and dad missing Halloween. For them, it's you know, like worse than Christmas, missing Christmas. And I woke up that next morning with something that's probably familiar to a lot of parents, that knot in your stomach, that I had no damn choice. I had to cancel that trip. That was Governor Gavin Newsom speaking yesterday in Monterey about being out of the public eye for a while. And that's what we're talking about this hour. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. All right, Marisa, your reaction? I mean, I think... As a parent of young kids, uh, my youngest is the same age as his youngest. I I get it. And I've actually seen a lot of people, including some of his, I think, harshest Republican critics, Doug Osee, who uh, briefly ran in that recall election to replace Newsom, former congressman, coming out to say, look, I I traveled while my kids were that young. It was awful. I would give anything to have time back with them. you know, I think there's two things at foot here. One is conservative media jumped on it when he was absent. And I do think that from a communications perspective, if he had offered this explanation two weeks ago, we wouldn't be talking about it right now. Um, I also understand maybe not wanting to as, as the governor, but uh, this certainly got drummed up in conservative media. There was all these conspiracies about why he was absent. Um, and then, of course, the mainstream media started asking about it. And there was so much radio silence that I think it just became a story. Um, but I do think a lot of people have empathy for that. I mean, you think about what this governorship has been like, wildfires, recalls, COVID. I mean, it, it I'm exhausted and I've just been covering it. Guy, what do you think? Well, look, I I think the reaction that came out after his explanation kind of just raised the question, why didn't this explanation come out when he announced that he would not be going to Scotland? Look, he has every right to stay silent about, you know, his personal time, spending time with his family. But we in the media have every right to question and critique that silence. And I think, you know, he has to understand. And I think watching that conference yesterday, he seemed a little perturbed that this had become a big story and that he was getting these questions. But for a governor that is put has put himself uh, in the limelight from the day he took office, I think it's only natural to have these questions pop up, not the fringe questioning about vaccine reactions and such, but the simple question of what is the governor up to? You've got to expect that kind of question will come up. 
Well, he did say, Marisa, that one of the things that he's been focused on is COVID. And yeah. at the economic summit, he said that a winter surge is his biggest anxiety. It does appear California's pandemic numbers on cases, hospitalizations and deaths even are reversing course. What can you just tell us quickly about that? Yeah, and this morning, the governor, state uh, Senator Oxpedia, U.S. Senator Oxpedia, were out urging folks not only to take their kids to get vaccinated who are eligible now, but to say, if you were over 18, get a booster shot. There really seemed to be opening this up to everybody. And they said there's plenty of vaccines. And the reason that they're messaging that, Mina, is the numbers you're talking about. What the data show is that this is really these surges are happening more so in places with lower vaccine rates places like the inland empire um have you know quadruple the sort of positivity rates of a place like the bay area but we're still seeing them tick up in the bay area as well and that is because we don't you know have a hundred percent of our population vaccinated um the hospitalizations among folks who are unvaccinated and catching COVID are six times higher than those with vaccines. So I think there's going to be a big push in the coming weeks. This is what the governor seems to be messaging on. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think they said over 100,000 kids have already been vaccinated since that FDA approval last week, and they expect more. Um, so it is, I, I think there's still a lot of uncertainty, Mina. I mean, we are not the place we wanted to be in this pandemic. And we know that winter is a time when people gather inside, when flu rates go up anyway. Um, and so there's a lot of concern among public health officials. Yeah. And as you point out, it is the hospitalization figures that are particularly concerning. And as you said, in the Inland Empire, in the Central Valley, some places have seen hospitalizations go up by more than 20% in recent yeah. weeks. So this will definitely be a story that we're watching. I guess that also won't bode well, uh, Marisa, for any hopes for people who wanted to see a loosening of maybe some restrictions or rules in schools or other places? Yeah, although, again, I think that's going to depend on our behavior and what happens with both vaccines and sort of general uh, rates. I mean, I, I, I do think you will expect to see some real disparities between communities in terms of what, you know, what the state sort of forces happening in schools um, in places where you have high rates and hospitalization rates versus places where those numbers may drop. I mean, I know in San Francisco, all the kids are talking about getting vaccinated, right? This is like a thing that um, that that I think is, is going to as we've seen throughout this pandemic, likely the rates will go higher in these urban areas sooner than they might in some of the rural and suburban areas that have been a little more hesitant. Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent for KQED and co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown Show. Thanks so much for talking with us. My pleasure. Also, thanks to Michael Hiltzik, business columnist for the Los Angeles Times. Thanks, Michael. My pleasure. Guy Marzarati, reporter and producer with KQED's California Politics and Government Desk. Thanks, Guy, as always. Thanks for having me. We've been talking about the latest headlines impacting California. With them and with you, our listeners, thanks for weighing in. My thanks to Ariana Prail for producing today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.